This podcast is brought to you by Aetna. Learn how Aetna is working to build a healthier world by visiting aetnastory.com. The 2020 Co-Mindfulness Summit is almost here. Join us on Saturday, October 3rd, live on the BBNR Wellness Consulting Facebook page for an all-day wellness event you won't want to miss. We have Dr. Royzen joining us from the Cleveland Clinic. You most likely know him from the U manuals he co-authored with Dr. Oz. He is also the creator of the Real Age Concept and is a great friend of ours, and we can't wait for you to meet him. Siri Lindley, world champion triathlete, two times over, I might mention, and coach to Olympic and Ironman champions will also join us from Boulder, Colorado. She, too, is a great friend of ours, and we are so excited to have her join us at this year's Co-Mindfulness Summit. We are very honored to be joined by Dr. Vivit Murphy, the 19th Surgeon General of the United States and author of the New York Times bestseller, Together, The Healing Power of Human Connection in a Sometimes Lonely World. This is such an important topic, probably more now than ever before, and promises to be an engaging conversation. And you won't want to miss Dr. Mark Hyman, who will talk to us about how best to build our immune system to fight COVID-19 and so much more. Join us on Saturday, October 3rd by visiting comindful.com. People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. So Trisha and I are so excited today to have the co-founder and president of the Environmental Working Group with us, Ken Cook. We're so excited, Ken, that you're here because your mission of protecting human health and the environment really goes hand in hand with our mission of educating and inspiring people to take better care of their health and the health of those they love. So we're just delighted that you're here. And we wanted to begin by just asking you a little bit about yourself so our listeners can know who you are. You are one of our greatest resources, by the way. So many of our listeners are familiar with you, but maybe they don't know you. And so tell us about you. Well, thanks, Doro and Tricia. I'm tickled because I think our missions are very much aligned. I started Environmental Working Group 27 years ago, something like that. Not that we're counting, right? And uh, (laughs) the whole idea at that time was to build something that would be effective in policy debates, right? A, A think tank that would do investigations, get the word out through the media. When news coverage was significant, you could then take that to Capitol Hill or into a federal department or an agency and use that as sort of the currency that you needed to inspire the policy process to take action. And a lot of things have changed since then. I come from uh, St. Louis, came from the Midwest, moved out to D.C. in uh, 1976, lived in D.C. for a couple of years, and then moved away for a while, started freelance writing. I learned about the connections between agriculture and the environment in graduate school at Mizzou, but then I also did work on that topic when I came to Washington. So from there, I just evolved to begin working on a whole range of issues, and after not too very long health became a focus of what became Environmental Working Group. I mean, I started with me and, you know, an assistant, and now we have about 70 people and scientists and database programmers, people who are really trying to figure out ways to translate the best available science to help you live a healthier life, to empower you to live a healthier life in a healthier environment. And we think, of course, the environment's very connected. I have a little boy. I have a wife. I live in California. Love it out here. Prior to the plague hitting us, I was in airplanes an awful lot. 
That's kind of my job at EWG. And now I'm, I've been home for longer than I've been home in years, like many people. Knock on wood, everyone here is healthy, we're working. So we have incredible privilege compared to so many other people in these times. We're trying to make the most of it. But really, EWG in my adult life has really been another child that I've yeah. raised. It's a privilege to see what everyone there makes happen every day, whether it's helping people be smarter, more thoughtful about the foods they eat, how they clean their homes, their personal care products, and so forth. And the focus on one-on-one -on -one connecting with people, which is your focus and so, so vital, was really underscored by the changes in the policy environment that made it harder and harder to get up in front of an audience. And I do that, or used to do it fairly often. It seemed like every other woman in the audience was pregnant. I don't know why you would come to a Ken Cook talk when you're pregnant, but they do. <laughs> and because uh, they know they're going to hear some pretty heavy stuff. It got harder and harder to make the case that we would have made, say, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, that a big part of the way forward was new laws, new regulations, industry compliance with those, and over time, in fairly short order, you would have regulations in place that were protective. And increasingly now, the gap between what science tells us is unsafe and what the government can be expected to do anytime soon, like maybe before that baby that's in a tummy at one of my talks has grandchildren of its own. <laughs> We'd like to make some progress on some of these pollution issues, but we can't count on that now. So things have changed in that regard. So a big part of what we do is trying to make information actionable to people, give them the small steps that give them the wins, the victories to take the next steps, right? The, we call them habits of environmental health. You preach from the same hymnal, I know. You want people to take charge of their lives and take those steps they can to both make progress and feel empowered. We love your downloadables. You know, oh, we have them all. We use them all. <laughs> we love oh, them. You. They come in a, and when we have our conferences, we share them with everybody, the Clean 15, the Dirty Dozen. I guess you're passionate about so much, but what is something you would want to talk about right now today that's kind of percolating up with you that you think we all need to know? Well, we're all in the midst of the same pandemic, right? It's by any measure an environmental crisis, right? It's a virus that uh, made its way from a relatively small city in China to our doorsteps in three months. It traveled environmentally. It has no treatment, no vaccine to prevent it. Everything we must do is environmental in nature to cope with this problem. Social distancing, that's an environmental step. Wearing a mask is taking a protective action. All the decisions that we make about how we clean our homes and so forth. So the first thing I would say is that you hate to look very hard for the bright side of a global pandemic, but if there might be one, it would be reinforcing this notion that we are intimately related to our environment, that we can't entirely keep the environment at bay no matter where we live, no matter how we live, there's a connection. We literally metabolize our environment. In this case, it's the virus metabolizing us, right? And so my hope is that during this period, people can take their health to heart. I think people are doing that. They're much more focused on just how valuable it is to have good health. And also that in pursuing good health, you want to interact with the environment around you in a thoughtful, smart way. Just like there are ways to stave off infection 
There are ways to reduce exposure to chemicals that might trigger asthma, might trigger allergies, uh, chemicals that might be in our food that might have chronic long-term effects that we can't predict, and feel empowered while you're doing it. And we've noticed more people coming to our site online now. More people are taking part in our events. They're contributing to our work because they feel it's relevant to what they're going through now, I think. I would give anything to make this all go away and the health and economic harms that have come with it, anything. But if you're looking for a silver lining, it's that recognition that we're all creatures of our environment. This is one case where the environment jumped out like most pandemics animal initiated another species it hops to ours and before you know it we realize just how closely we are intertwined with our environment in ways we would never have imagined ken how would someone with no prior experience with health and wellness take their first steps to begin well i think it's important to begin so that's exactly the right question and it's also important not to feel like you have to do everything perfect or everything at once so here's what we tell people and what I tell people, start with something, one component of your life that we know is a vector for exposures that we recommend you avoid. And I should have started by saying, you know, one thing we'll probably skip over a little bit here, but we pay a lot of attention to at EWG is that there are really solid scientific reasons for taking this action on your own because the government's not able to do it. I'm sorry that that's the case, but the science is very solid for reducing exposures, whether you're concerned about cancer, learning problems, allergies, what have you. So there's science underneath all of those. I would jump in with food, to be honest. I would look to that. It's every day. It's multiple times a day. You have lots of opportunities to challenge bad habits and form new ones so that repetitiveness is important. There's lots of good advice about avoiding foods that have pesticides in them that we provide on our website, avoiding sketchy ingredients that are added to conventional foods that aren't allowed in organic, smart ways to, without having to buy organic, avoid both of those sets of exposures. There's also a whole set of questions about nutrition and diet in that regard, nutrients and calories and so forth. We try and give good advice both on our website, our food news site, and also on our app, our Healthy Living app, which you can download for any smartphone that's out there practically. I would start there. And, you know, don't go to the refrigerator and clean everything out that doesn't make our approved list or whatever. Go through and use that food. Don't waste it. And then as you start to shop again, online maybe these days, start replacing a few things and find something that gives you the experience of enjoying the food. At the same time, it's a healthier option. Don't rush into it. Don't feel like you have to do all of this at once. Then go to personal care. Look at your personal care products. Go to our Skin Deep website where we rate thousands of them for their health. You know, it's okay to use up that last container mm -hmm. and then start looking for something that works for you in terms of what your desired effect makes you feel good, makes you feel healthy, makes you feel beautiful, whatever it makes you feel. Start substituting one by one and the same with cleaning products. So that really is, it's more important for us at EWG to get people feeling empowered and on that path of learning and forming new habits and having these sort of personal environmental wins than it is to be perfect because none of us are perfect. I just gave my son some pop chips. Uh, this would not rate well on the EWG site. And yet right now I'm spoiling him just a little bit because of all the other stuff a 12-year-old is going through who's not having a standard 12-year-old summer. No camp, no hanging with buddies. So give yourself a little bit of a break. Let yourself ease into some of these things. And I think that's the way to build more enduring 
habits anyway. Mm-hmm. And learn as you go. So can yeah. you kind of back up and talk to us about organic versus conventional? Yeah. So tell us why there's so little area that is organic. And if I do buy organic, what is the standard? Can you explain that whole issue to us and to our listeners? Organic is a federal standard now put in place in 1990 to replace the patchwork that was operating until then across the states. Your father, Doro, signed the law that made organic a reality. And as the regulatory process moved forward, it did take a while. The regulations were developed to effectuate that 1990 law. And what it really means is the standard is set by USDA, all the criteria, and then third parties certify organic operations. In order to have that USDA organic seal, that green and white seal with USDA on it, you have to follow the regulations and you have to be certified by one of the certifying bodies out there, whether you're an organic farmer or a food manufacturer. If you want that sticker, that label on your product in a farmer's market or anywhere else, you have to follow those rules and they're rigorous. People want to make them more rigorous and I understand that, but they're plenty rigorous and you'll understand that when I now go to your, what's the difference between that and conventional? Most people think of organic as the main difference being pesticides and that is a big difference. Some pesticides are allowed in organic, but they are much less toxic than the pesticides that are used in conventional agriculture. Very few pesticide agents are allowed in organic. They tend to be naturally derived. According to EPA, they are so relatively safe, they don't even have, in most cases, a tolerance level, a legal limit in food because there's no worry about them. So there's a big difference on pesticides, even though some are used in organic right there. That's for starters. And that's not just at the growing of the food, but all through the harvest, storage, and processing, no pesticides allowed. And that is not the case with conventional. They spray fumigants in grain elevators. They store fruits and vegetables with antifungal agents sometimes, and it gets into the flesh of the fruit and vegetable. The other big difference, and we're doing a lot of research, which we'll unveil probably later this summer, is with all of the additives, the flavorings, the colorings, the fillers, all the texturizers, the thousands and thousands of ingredients that are allowed in conventional processed food, almost none of them are allowed inorganic. You know, we all get tired of the chemical scare of the week or the, oh my gosh, now there's this additive and that. Well, it's whack-a-mole, right? <laughs> Sometimes one flavoring compound gets a black eye in a study or from a regulator and some other compound pops up in its place that we don't learn about for 10 more years. That's the real problem we have with regulating these substances across all of the statutes, all the laws that regulate them. But with organic, it's still a small fraction of our landscape, but it's becoming much more available. The real prices correcting for inflation over time have, have fallen as the sector's grown. The demand is still growing. The organic sector is still growing considerably faster than the conventional one, which basically grows at the population rate, whereas organic grows usually two or three or more times that fast because people want it. Yes, you can still eat in an unhealthy manner. If you eat a bunch of organic cookies and organic chips and all the rest, you still have to be smart about that. But it's night and day, really. My friend Phil Landergan, a famous public health expert, he's now at Boston University, he used to say that organic is private school for food. It's great if you can find it, great if you can afford it, but not everyone can. And that was certainly true in 1990 and then up until 
very recently, and it is still, there is still a price difference. It's coming down, but it's still there. But it's no longer something that you have to go to a health food store for. And the products no longer look like, I used to go to some of these co-ops. I would wonder, were those vegetables harvested or did they just escape? Did they just break, <laughs> did they just make a breakout? You know, how they, how they get off the farm? Must have been pretty rough. Um, but that's changing, right? You can go to any of our major grocery stores. Many of them, uh, like Safeway and Kroger's, they have their own in-house organic brands. It's relevant to the notion that environmentalism has changed in some important ways. We can now point to things, whether it's in organic food or in energy or personal care, where we can see that what used to be a pipe dream or unicorn fantasies, whatever you want to describe it as, is becoming real now. Solar power, electric batteries in combination, wind power is revolutionizing and threatening the status quo in energy. Organic is doing the same with agriculture. It's taken decades, but it's happening. In personal care, beauty products, clean beauty is sweeping away a lot of ingredients and products that had some kind of sketchy, understudied things in them, and now we're getting rid of that. So I like to tell people that if we're empowering people to lead healthier lives in a healthier environment, and you're taking that action, the other changes that we're fighting for now is as important as what we're fighting against. What we can already see right in front of us, right there, that's real. It's not made up anymore. Talking about solar panels 10 years ago, 15 years ago, and the energy debates on Capitol Hill, no, people really shied away from even mentioning it very much on my side because it was, you couldn't even find it hardly, right? Big difference now, it's the fastest growing part of our energy system in terms of the electric grid. So the difference between organic and conventional is also a metaphor. It's the power of the marketplace, interconnected consumers, this route of information was not available how many years ago? Not very many, right? You've built a whole business around it and people are responding and they're starting to rebuild the economy slowly but surely, product by product, skew by skew, sector by sector, based on being informed, having the motivation to protect themselves and their families. And there are people in the private sector who are saying, you know what, I'm going to respond. I'm going to make some money doing that. I'm going to make the products that are healthier. I'm going to make the product that doesn't have the weird, sketchy ingredient that's always been in that product. Skip the sketchy stuff and just go straight to the good stuff. Can you talk about water? Hydration is obviously so important. Can you talk about the difference between tap water and bottled water? It's a really good question. Bottled water is regulated by the FDA and your tap water is regulated by the EPA. My feeling is, generally speaking, bottled water is safe. It's often not worth it. It's often just filtered tap water that's been put into a bottle and marketed, and you're paying way more than you would if you took it out of the tap. You know, there have been instances where bottled water has shown up having contaminants in it that needed to be addressed. We don't have a very robust monitoring program for contaminants in bottled water at the FDA. It's an agency that's not very well attuned to uh, personal care products or food relative to medical devices and drugs, right? That's where the weight of that agency and the resources of that agency are applied. There's always concern about that. Would I be worried about buying bottled water in the U.S. at an airport or something? No. And when I don't have my own bottle with me, I don't hesitate buying bottled water because it's better than buying bottled soda or whatever. But in terms of health and safety for tap water, we recommend people go to our website, the Tap Water Database, type in their zip code. We're, we're constantly updating it. The most recent update was last fall with the most recent test data 
that are required by law. Utilities are required to test their water for a whole range of substances. We get all of that data through Freedom of Information Act requests from states, put it together on one site, and then we give you our take, our science of contaminants that may show up in your drinking water. And we've set our own limits, our own guidelines. EPA sets theirs. Sometimes they don't set them for decades. We don't want to wait that long. Our scientists step up and say, well, if there's this much of this weed killer in your water, you're probably getting a level that you ought to be concerned about, or arsenic or mercury or other toxic chemicals, lead. Go to the tap water database, and when you get there, my general advice is it's probably best if you can to drink filtered tap water. So when you go to the tap water database, it'll show you which substances have been found under testing required by the federal government. Then we give you an opportunity to look at filtration systems that will take those particular contaminants out of your water. So filtered tap water is really what we recommend, but I think you should start by seeing what's in your tap water. If it's a community water system, that's what it will be in our database. If you drink well water, a lot of people do in uh, rural areas, you should have your water tested and see what's in it. It's an expense. No one will pay for it for you. You Unfortunately, you have to pay, and sometimes it's hundreds of dollars to find a good lab so they can actually find what might be of concern and tell you what's in it. And then design your use around that, whether it's drinking or in some cases showering, what have you. There are exposures that happen when that hot steam comes out in the shower as well. So these are things to be aware of. What about GMOs? Can you explain that whole issue? Yeah. Genetically modified products, you know, across the economy, a lot of medicines come from bioengineering. But the main thing that people have focused on and the big debate has been GMOs in food. For the most part, these have been foods that have been designed, the vast majority of the acreage and the, the usage of them has been for corn and soybeans and cotton. And they've been genetically engineered so that they can be sprayed with a weed killer and not die. The weeds around them die, they live. And so that genetic component is a modification from what has happened up until now with conventional breeding or through nature. Our take on GMOs is that we're not very happy with the system that's used to evaluate the GMOs themselves. We feel like it should be more robust. Largely for that reason, we feel like people should have a right to know what's in their food with respect to GMOs. So we were in favor of labeling them. We haven't had a very good regulatory outcome so far. We're still fighting that fight with this administration. A law was passed that we had hoped would begin to provide the kind of information to consumers that would be helpful to them to identify GMO-containing foods. That's now going to be very problematic. Our primary concern with GMOs in the first instance is that people should have a right to know it. The other concern is that there's a huge amount of pesticide use, weed killers in particular, that's associated with these compounds doesn't necessarily end up in the GMO crops because they're sprayed early in the season to kill the weeds, not when there's grain or other items we would eat, other plant parts we would eat. Our concern is that there's a huge amount of use of Roundup. It's in the air in the Midwest in the spray season. It's in the rainwater. It's in people. We have focused a lot on dietary exposure to glyphosate and recently published a report on that. We've focused on hummus because mm -hmm. they spray chickpeas at the end of the season. They're not genetically resistant. They die and they dry out for the convenience of the farmer because it's at the end of the season. And the same thing happens with oats, mostly in Canada. 
they spray this glyphosate on the crops right before harvest. And of course, then it's in the food, it's in the grain, it's in the chickpeas that end up in hummus. So we've been working to test those products for glyphosate, publicize the results. And I'm happy to say that we're seeing not in response to government regulation, but in response to consumers making the case that they'd thank you very much, rather not have oatmeal with weed killer uh, or hummus (laughs) with glyphosate, right? They're sending a signal back through the supply chain from the fork and the spoon that is being read by the food companies and then the grain traders and right back to the farmers. So I think we can knock out some of the main dietary exposures just by consumer action. And that's, again, consistent with this whole idea, the empowerment that you bring to making your life healthier and your family's life healthier begins to reverberate in the economy, right? Companies Mm. follow suit. They're chasing dollars and competitive advantage. They're listening to consumers. It doesn't have to be very many consumers. It can be influential consumers like the two of you who have a platform and are making these points to the public. That can begin to shift behavior by companies and by the rest of the food supply chain. So we're seeing that. And it's a good thing because we really are sort of stuck now in our ability for the government to take meaningful action. It's just the reality. And Dora, I have to say, I trace this in a good way to 1990, the Clean Air Act. When your father signed that bill, and my dear friend Bill Riley was standing right next to him when he signed it, the EPA administrator at the time, I do think that it took some courage for him to do that, to say the very least. There was a lot of opposition, including in his inner circle in the administration. He listened to Riley and a few other voices, and he signed that bill. But I do think that that began to trigger sort of an ideological divide and a partisan divide that's been unfortunate since then because people didn't want to see a Republican president signing an environmental law. Mm -hmm. And when that happened, you know, it became harder and harder for right-minded people to come together because there was a price to be paid, both on Republican and the Democratic side. These industries got the idea, hey, this could continue. The economy is growing. We're able to regulate a little bit. The economy adjusts. It keeps growing. And we're safer. That's not so good if you're running certain companies and have certain interests. So fast forward, now that consumers have this power to make things happen, the way change occurs is very different. It's not science coming forward, government making changes, industry complying, and consumers benefiting. Now it's science coming forward, consumers seeing it, Mm -hmm. acting on it, companies starting to make changes happen, and the last step is for government to get involved and level the playing field after these disruptions have taken place. There's all kinds of courage in the world. That was an act of courage on the part of President Bush to sign that law. I recall him being very proud of it in his pronouncements Mm -hmm. about it, but it signaled to me a turning point where the power now has largely shifted away from the policymaking process to what happens before that. And now it's that science consumer connectedness and interaction that's driving things. That's the trade you're plying, you two, with the <laughs> healthy living, right? You're, you're We're trying. Right. I have a question, a little pivot. This whole shift of people staying and working from home now, I've heard a lot of people say it saves so much money and this and that, and it just better lifestyle. And this may be a change that could be permanent and how this has affected our environment and air pollution and traffic way down. And I'm just wondering if you're optimistic about that and how this will affect the environment. 
we talk about it around EWG all the time. We're talking about it ourselves. When we go back to work, what kind of office will we need? Are we going to be working more from home? Some of my colleagues who work in our San Francisco or our DC office or even in Minnesota, they commute by public transport. They're worried about that with COVID. There are some upsides. I Again, just to, to be very clear to me, the harm and the damage, the human toll that's been taken by this pandemic isn't worth the reduced air pollution. What might endure out of this that's positive? That's what you're getting at, right? And my feeling is that I think people are, who've been privileged to continue working, and I'll put myself in that category, I think are looking at their work a little bit differently. I worked a lot at home already, but more of my colleagues are starting to think that way. And I think that's true across the economy. I mean, look at all of the changes that have happened here in the San Francisco Bay Area with these big tech companies deciding, well, you know, we're pretty productive without all these giant buildings that we're either owning or leasing. So I think that's definitely a plus. I think people are thinking differently about transportation needs. I'm a big cyclist and um, thrilled that people are discovering bicycles. And my, here's my tip, electric bikes. <laughs> Try an electric bike. It will change your life. You won't believe how amazing they are. Now, I'm not saying today in D.C. you could get around without sweating because you probably can't walk to the <laughs> sidewalk without sweating. But generally speaking, I think people are starting to form new patterns of work and travel for work that could really endure. I do worry about people cooped up indoors now with air conditioning maybe or in the wintertime without adequate circulation and using all these cleaning products to deal with COVID without having proper ventilation because we know already most exposure, the greatest exposures to air pollutants come indoors, not outdoors. We've known that for decades and it's not regulated indoors very much. There's some steps that have been taken with allergens and other things largely driven out of California that affect the whole country. But I do worry that people understand that the implications of so much time spent indoors and sealed up, you know, energy efficiency is great for energy efficiency, but it's not so great for fresh air sometimes. Mm -hmm. So we have lots of guides and advice for people to take a look at at ewg.org for that purpose. But yeah, I mean, you always want to try and make lemonade out of the lemons, right? There are elements of this time that have to present opportunities. And I think the opportunities for changing the energy system, commuting patterns, the efficiency of working at home. Some employers are experiencing an at-home workforce for the first time. So just that learning process that might make it possible for people to, on the one hand, you're more efficient and get more work done. You don't spend all that time commuting. On the other hand, you never leave work. Right. <laughs> so there's that too, right? And as concerned as you are about mindfulness and having people search for balance and so forth, that's a toxicity to be cognizant of as well. I just think it's a time where there's lots of experimentation and learning going on, forced on us by this little bug that came halfway around the world, really in an eye blink, right? And is still going very strong, going very strong. I love what you're saying too, is there, how do you find the balance? You know, you don't want to be indoors. Like you said, we've known it for a long time. So how do you find balance is what I hear you saying. Yeah. I mean, get outside, right? Get out and walk around. It's easier for some folks than others. If you're able to get out in whatever fashion, it's important to do it. There's plenty of evidence in the literature that it's better for your mood. It's better for your physiology. Of course, it's much better in most cases for you to get outside. Unfortunately, not for everyone because the, you know, the air will be fresher and you'll get off a screen. It's tough to find that silver lining right now, but finding balance between work and home life 
it's been thrown into fresh relief. Yeah. One of our favorite things from your website is the clean 15 and the dirty dozen. Yeah. And we use it often and refer people to it often. Tell us about that and how often it's updated and how that works. Uh, former colleague Richard Wiles and Chris Campbell, who's still our database programmer, came up with this uh, some years ago, but I think it might have been almost 20 years ago. You know, it's a quandary. You want people to eat more fresh fruits and vegetables, but, you know, as we look at some of the levels of pesticides that are legal, unfortunately, on some of those crops, it raised concerns. And we know it's legit to worry about it in many cases because we have many examples where the EPA ruled that a certain level of pesticide was just fine on a certain set of fruits and vegetables for decades. And then one day they announced, oops, can't use it anymore. It's got to go. <laughs> well, it didn't just become unsafe. It's been unsafe the whole time, but the science didn't catch up. What my colleagues decided at the time was, well, look, there are certain ways we want to tell people that organic really makes a difference. But, you know, when we started doing that, it was really hard to find organic produce reliably and certainly in supermarkets the way it is now. And even now there are limits to seasons and some supermarkets are better than others. There are food deserts that don't have produce at all. So every year the Department of Agriculture conducts tests. This also began in Bush One, this testing program they test fruits and vegetables for pesticides. And the whole point of that program, the reason it was started was to see which fruits and vegetables we need to take an extra careful look at to make sure children are protected. They've continued that program. They don't test all types of produce every year, but they test a lot of them and they publish the results. We take those results and it's thousands of laboratory tests. The tests are conducted when the fruits are prepared as if for consumption. So the bananas are peeled, the apples are cored, and so forth. And then they put them into the chemical analysis. And we find that there are lots of contamination of fruits and vegetables with pesticides. So we decided, well, let's try and help people make a smart choice about, you know, if they're spending their scarce dollars for organic, which fruits or vegetables should they try and buy organic? So that's the dirty dozen. We came up with a system for, you know, which ones have the most pesticides. There's all kinds of legitimate debate. In our view, it's legitimate, and it's our list. It's our construct as to whether that's the best way to rank or if it's even fair to rank chemicals and fruits and vegetables in that way. We feel comfortable with it, and we would love to be able to do it more rigorously, but these are just fruits and vegetables that tend to have lots of different pesticides on them. They're pretty highly contaminated in terms of any given day. If you pick out an apple or a strawberry, it's likely to have some pesticides on it. So most of the national crop is contaminated and the levels tend to be elevated. So that's the basics of our dirty dozen. Then we went the other way and said, okay, well, what about people who can't find or afford organic, who can't do private school for food? Which fruits and vegetables that are grown conventionally and tested by USDA show up as having pretty low pesticide levels? And the reason they do is the season that the fruit or vegetable is sprayed, if it's sprayed early in the season before there's fruit that's set or vegetables that have formed, if it's early in the season, there may be no residue. Bananas don't have much residue beyond the peel. That became the clean 15, where we said, you know, you can focus your organic purchases here, Always buy organic if you can, but this Clean 15 shop in that group of fruits and vegetables because they don't have many pesticides on them as you consume them. They may have been sprayed in the field, may have posed a hazard to the farm workers, the farmers, the communities, but for you as a, an end consumer, they tend to be safer. And this was one of the early realizations we had that we really do have to offer people practical, actionable advice, not just purity. 
purity comes pretty easy, actually. We can all dream up purity. We can't often live by it, but we can dream it up and we can voice it on others if we so choose. But to us, it was more important to move directionally in the right way, as opposed to say that until you get to that destination, nothing else matters. No, it is the journey that matters. Sounds trite, but it is the journey that really matters. And as you're cleaning up along the way, you're getting a sense, well, hey, I'm winning for myself, for my family. This is not so hard. You know, I'm eating fruits and vegetables, not having to deal with the pesticides. What should I do next? Let me look in my uh, makeup kit. Let me look under my sink. Let me look into this meditation thing. All those tipping points for me come from one of two things. It's either a bad diagnosis, maybe yours, maybe someone you love, or someone starting or adding to a family, right? Those are the two great teachable moments in our experience for health and wellness. We learned from the Dirty Dozen that giving people something that they could build on and feel positive about was really in sync with those learning moments to give people a sense of victory. Now, I have one more Bush family story to tell. Okay. Great. So my mom, at the end of her life, she was in St. Louis. She had a stroke. We brought her to Washington, to the Washington home. Oh, yes. I see the smile. Yes, I know. My mom was a big part of the Washington home. My wife and I got married in the Barbara Bush garden in the middle of the Washington home. No way. Way. Every time I walked in to see my mom, she was in terrible shape, but I got to spend time with her because we lived right down the street from the Washington home, and what an amazing place that is. But when you walk in, you walk by that, it's like a courtyard garden in the middle of the complex. It's just beautiful. So we got married, and because it's glass all around the garden, and it's incorporated in the heart of the building, as you well know, the residents who lived there saw this event happening in the Barbara Bush Garden. They just assumed it was an event for the nursing home. So we had these <laughs> dozens and dozens so of people coming in with their walkers. And thank God we had enough champagne flutes. <laughs> and I'm so thrilled to be able to tell you that if there was any spirit that I associated with your mother, I'd never had the honor of meeting her. But just knowing that she was so invested in that place, the Washington home and that garden, you would have been very happy to see uh, yes. people gathering around my wedding with my <laughs> wife, Deb. Oh, she would have loved that. Oh, Of course she would have. Well, thank you, Ken. We just so appreciate your joining us today. My pleasure. And I hope we can get together in person before too long when that becomes fashionable again. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well. <laughs>